Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there from the book of Ruth and the section that we read there in chapter 1. I'd like this to think about it under the title, uh, Decision Time. I suppose uh, one of the things that we do most in life is make decisions. Some of these uh, decisions, we don't even notice them. Um, How many of us can remember the first thing we did when we went into the kitchen this morning? Yet we're making decisions all the time. Uh, If we were asked to list our activities so far today, we probably wouldn't be able to say half of them. Yet regarding all of them, we decided to do them. Obviously these decisions are a bit more mundane than bigger ones that come along uh, now and again. And the book of Ruth, well, if there's one thing about the book of Ruth, it's full of decisions. In the first five chapters, which we thought about last week, several decisions are mentioned there. Decision of Elimelech to leave Bethlehem and go and live in Moab. That was a major decision. The decision of the family to stay in Moab after he died the decision of his two sons to marry two Moabite girls was a major decision. And now that the two sons have died, another decision has to be made. And the decision, as we can see, is that the three widows Naomi and Ruth and Orpha, they decide to go to Judah. That was obviously a major decision that they seem to have made in consultation with each other. What prompted this sudden decision? I mean, this latest decision is kind of going in the opposite direction of all the previous decisions. Elimelech's decision to go east to Moab because of the famine, that was only meant to be a temporary sojourn. But somewhere along the line, they liked what was on in Moab, and they decided to stay there even decided to settle down to have a new place for them to live as a family. But something has prompted them to go back. And I think the author is wanting us to notice that. They're now going back. It's almost a, a picture of repentance, isn't it? 
at least on Naomi's part. And as um, they think about that, well, we're told what the motive was, or at least what the information was that caused her to think this way. And we're told that in verse 6, that she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She just realized that God's anger had stopped. That the, it's a common thing in the Old Testament, uh, not for society in general, but it's a common thing in the Old Testament for famines to be used as a means of divine chastisement on his people. He had warned them of that, and he took them out of Egypt. And he said to them, if you depart from me, one of the things I'll send to you as punishment is famines. And, I mean, Moab is only across the border from Judah. But there's no famine in Moab. So the famine is not a geographical thing as if it was widespread around different nations. It was actually quite a specified one that was here. And um, <clears throat> for one reason or another, after about, probably about 20 years, the famine in Judah has come to an end. And Ruth, here, sorry, Naomi hears about it, and it seems to have done something to her hearing this information. It's got nothing to do with lack of food. Because there's still plenty of food in Moab. It's got nothing to do with the restoration of food. Because she had plenty of food where she was in Moab. But something just had stimulated her in her mind to thinking that she's in the wrong place. That the surrounding circumstances may be very uh, nice pleasant but she's aware she's in the wrong place and therefore she says she must go back she must go back to where she should be and therefore she heads off to Judah to Bethlehem she's probably got about 50 miles to go but I suppose if you're walking, 50 miles gives you a lot of time to think. And perhaps on the way, she realized that while she could get back into Judah without any difficulty, it wouldn't be the case with, with her two daughters-in-law. There were laws in the Old Testament that prohibited Moabites worshipping with the, with the Israelites in God's presence. And that was obviously a real complication for her. What was she going to, to do about the situation where the, where the two daughters-in-law were basically barred from the Israel, from Judah? I mean, what would we have done? 
I mean, we know we can worship God anywhere. But what would we have done in this scenario? Anyway, it looks as if she was thinking as they're making her way along the road. It's not going to be good for Ruth and Orpha. They will not be welcomed. Their decision to go with her is now being questioned. And therefore, I want to think about Naomi and her decisions that she is taking herself and urging others to take. Got three headings. They're not very innovative. There's attempt one, there's attempt two, and there's attempt three. And she has three goals at getting people to, or Ruth and Orpha, to change their minds. So the first one, there in verses 8 to 10. It's quite an extraordinary one, actually, when you read about it. She says to Ruth and Orpha, Go back to your parents' house, and there God will deal kindly with you. And there, she says, it's possible that the Lord will give them rest, each of them, in the house of their new husband, if they would get one. She is saying to them, and it's a rather unusual statement, she's saying to them, God can bless you where you are, even if you're not in the right place. Her statement here has puzzled people. Is it is this the voice of our backslider? Say it doesn't matter what God says about the importance of the worship in Jerusalem or in Israel? Is she just using nice words to try to motivate them to go back? Or is she testing them? She now knows she has to go back. And is she testing them to see where they'll go back as well? Three options. Don't know the answer personally. It may have been the case that God would bless them We have to remember the story of Naaman when he went back to Syria and even had to go up to the pagan temple and he asked Elisha for his basket full of ground to stand on 
And Elisha seems to have said to him, go and do it. It is interesting that later on, David, when he wants to find somewhere to hide his parents, and of course David is descended from Ruth, and it may be that when David hid his parents in Moab, that he was hiding them with people there that the family were aware of. And I doubt if he would have hid them with people that didn't share his outlook. But anyway, there's this attempt number one. And despite her, uh, Naomi's enthusiasm that God will be good to them if they stay in Moab. They don't agree with her. And they basically uh, reject them, reject her advice. They kiss, as we can see there in verse 9, and they're weeping. But they say to her, no. We will return with you to your people. So, attempt number one didn't work. Then there's attempt number two there in verse 11 to 14. And in this attempt, uh, Naomi refers to uh, the practice that they had at that time. Uh, they had it in Israel, and they may have had it in the surrounding nations. But it's referring to Israel here, and that practice was that when uh, a man died, then his brother uh, would uh, marry the widow and have raised up a family in order for the family name to continue. And Naomi uh, refers to that here. And of course, her at this stage, her sons are dead. She doesn't have any other sons that could possibly marry either Orpha or Ruth. And we might um, overlook that. But I think if we overlook that, we're actually missing something very important. Because the important detail is that Naomi is now thinking biblically. This is a divine provision that has been made for uh, widows who have died childless that their husband's uh, brother can become their husband. But with her case, it's impossible. So here we have a hint, don't we, that Naomi would like to obey God's word. 
but providence has stopped her. And that must have been quite difficult for her. She's got this awareness of a divine promise and there's no way in providence for it to be fulfilled. It almost seems as if she's been hemmed in and and she says to Orpha and Ruth there at the end of verse 13 that this situation makes it very bitter for her. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. What's making her distressed is the situation these two daughters-in-law are in. And she can do nothing to rectify the situation. And that causes her to to be extremely distraught. I mean, she's not confessing that she has done anything personally wrong with her bitterness of soul. But she is saying that divine providence The God who has created within me this longing to go back to my own country and my own people. He's making it impossible for you to come. And she's basically saying to them, If you come back to Judah with me and back to Bethlehem with me, there's nothing there for you. She can't give anything. Nobody can give anything. This attempt number two, well, it's followed by the Almost the same response as attempt number one. They start kissing each other again and they weep. Except Orpha goes back. She has heard Naomi's explanation. What's the point of going back somewhere if God is not going to bless the person you're with? Almost seems to be her response. If I can't get anything in Bethlehem, I might as well stay in Moab. Is that not what Orpha says? In Orpha seems to be a a very nice person. From one point of view, she seems as dedicated to Naomi as Ruth is. I mean, she's willing to go with Ruth and Naomi. But she senses that 
Naomi is saying to her, it won't be good for you if you come with me. Doors are all closed. Providence can be a very difficult thing, can't it? God's promises are often very clear. God's providences are sometimes the opposite. We don't understand. Naomi's longing for divine blessing almost seems to be saying she has to leave her daughters-in-law. As we think of Orpha, There are some lessons to take from her. One obviously is you can be so near and yet so far. And how close is Orpha to finding the road to heaven? Well, you could almost say she looked as if she was on it. But sadly, she wasn't. That's one lesson from it, isn't it? She took a few steps on the road to Bethlehem. But when it seemed to be too complex, too difficult. She took the easy way out. And many people do that. Another obvious lesson from Orpha is this. It's not enough to be nice. Common grace is not saving grace. I read one man on this book from a couple of centuries ago. He did say in it, and it's true, there are some non-Christians who are a lot nicer than Christians. Orpha, very nice, full of all tenderness and love to her mother-in-law. But in contrast to Ruth, she had no thought of Naomi's God. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It's what you think of God that counts. It's 
So attempt two was 50% successful. And then there's attempt three in verses 14 to 18. We get a hint here in verse 15 that um, Naomi is actually testing them because she gives her assessment of Orpha. And she says, Orpha has gone back to her people and to her God. If we knew anything about the gods of Moab, we would be appalled at that statement. The gods of Moab didn't exist, of course. But the ideas that were linked to them were totally horrendous. But anyway, Orpheus gone back. And we see in verse 14, that Ruth is clinging to Naomi. Orpha kissed her. But it is, we're meant to imagine it. It's a very emotional scene. Orpha is kissing. But it's a kiss of goodbye. But Ruth, she's not going anywhere that Naomi is suggesting. She's, um, she gives us uh, some insight into the strength of Naomi's words. She says there in verse 16, do not urge me I mean, that's describing Naomi's manner of speaking. She wasn't just making a suggestion that they go back. She was urging them to go back. But Ruth says, don't do that. And she responds with um, her commitment. And her, her words there from verse 15 and following, verse 16 and following, well, we, perhaps most of us know them by heart. We've heard about them if we're in the church. We've heard about them all our lives. Very dramatic statement. But it's more than just a dramatic statement. It's straight from the heart. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. When I die, when, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
100% commitment. It's a totally all-round commitment, a balanced commitment, internal commitment, external commitment, lifelong commitment, loving commitment. You know, Ruth never saw God. She had never yet seen the worship of God in Israel. The only thing or witness that she had seen about God was Naomi. And everything she had seen in Naomi would probably have put her off. The providences that she had undergone. And providences can put people off. Except those who are determined to follow God. It's almost as Ruth is saying to Naomi, it doesn't matter what providence does to you. I'm staying with you. It's been hard. And Ruth has seen it with her eyes. Providence has been very difficult for Naomi. But Ruth doesn't say to Naomi, what kind of God have you got that lets that happen? Instead, she says to Naomi, I still want to know you and your God. I mean, providence doesn't put anybody off in whose heart the Spirit of God is working. Ruth's been enlightened. She'll keep going, whatever happens. Even if it gets to the stage that Naomi dies, Ruth is going to be there. That's what she says, isn't it? 100% commitment. What can we say about Ruth? Ruth the Moabites. Well, she's got now got a new identity. She's now very different from anybody else in Moab. She is an Israelite. And she's never been to Israel yet. She's determined to follow the God of Israel. How did she know anything about the God of Israel? Well, Naomi must have told her. Naomi must have told her about the God of the Exodus. 
I mean, we know from other parts of the Bible that the nations around were amazed at the Exodus. What kind of God could do this? Divide the Red Sea. She must have known about, told Ruth about the God who did all these marvelous things for his people. The God who had made the great promises of the Messiah. He's going to come. One day he will come. Savior. The Deliverer. And that grit Ruth's heart. She discovered it. I mean, the, the father of, I'm sorry, the mother of Boaz, Ruth's uh, future husband, Boaz's mother is Rahab of Jericho, the, the woman that was spared when that city was destroyed. And Boaz is one of the chief men in Bethlehem, a close relative of Naomi. And the story of Rahab, the one who experienced great mercy from God, and who even married Salmon, the prince of Judah. That tells us who Boaz is. But it was all to do with divine mercy. Your God shall be my God. She's going to love all the way. She wants to be buried with Naomi. Wherever that sepulcher is, no doubt. That's where they were. Why is she saying that? It's not because she believes that's the end of the story. And they believe in the resurrection. Die together. Rise together. Ruth, it's not just a commitment for time. It's a commitment for eternity. And she's got it all in a nutshell. What remarkable insight she has. She's never heard a priest give a sermon. She's never had a Levite call at the house and give her spiritual instruction. All she's had is an old woman who has been battered through providence. And yet that Naomi's witness convinces her there's a God. As we close, we can see marks of Christian commitment in Naomi. She forsakes her past life. And like Orpha, Orpha goes back to it. 
Ruth, she forsakes it. She can't be both a Moabite and an Israelite. It's one or the other. 100% commitment either way. It's not 50-50. She gives up her past life. Automatically, she's marked by brotherly love, or in her case, sisterly love. She can't stop loving Naomi. I mean, that is a real mark of authentic Christianity. We know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brothers. If we don't love them, it doesn't matter what other proofs there are. That's a basic essential. She's devoted exclusively to the God of salvation. Your God shall be my God. In her heart, there's this longing for worship. To worship the God of salvation and mercy. That longing was placed within her by the Holy Spirit and nothing can stop it coming to fruition. And as I mentioned earlier, she's got eternity in view. She just doesn't live for this world. She also lives for the world to come. Are we Christian? Well, it's the same question like asking, are we like Ruth? Do we have the features that Ruth has in this statement? Just mention what they are. Forsaken the past life. Marked by brotherly love. Determined to honor God. And we live with eternity in our mindset as we look ahead. Ruth and Orpha, both very nice, but each ended up walking in different directions. We have to ask ourselves, as we look in the spiritual mirror, am I Ruth or am I Orpha? It's an important question because it can result in a different destination. A different destination not only in time but in eternity. Shall we pray? Lord, we can be moved by the pathos of this emotional parting. We
we come shed tears as we watch Orpha walk into the distance and out of the story of grace almost we can be moved by the earnestness as well as the love of Ruth but it's not enough to observe We're like one of them. We can't be like both of them. But each of us is like one of them. Help us, Lord, to be like Ruth and not to be like Orpha. Do it for your own name's sake, we pray. Amen.